Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is July 5th, 2018, and I'm going to do something I haven't done in a while, which is a monologue episode. My thoughts on an issue that I thought you might find interesting, and that issue is the state of political conversation, discourse um, in America, and it probably applies to lots of places as well. It's not just America, and I'm going to be talking about the role of social media and other websites uh, and their impact on that conversation and our political system. I realized in getting ready for this episode that some of this goes back to my conversations with David Weinberger. I think it's the 2007 episode, um, which is crazy. Uh, a more recent episode with Cass Sunstein on his book, uh, Hashtag Republic, as well as an episode with Matt Stoller on monopoly issues. But it's also a theme I've been thinking about on quite a bit in the last year or two, the angry nature of American politics, the loss of civility, mutual respect, um, and so on. And it's somewhat related, I think, to the episode um, with Megan McArdle on internet shaming and those kind of things. I'm basing this essay, this episode on an essay that I hope to post soon at medium.com, and I'll link to that. It should be up by the time that this, this airs. So one way to sum up what, I'll, what I'm talking about is best expressed by the poet um, Yeats in his powerful poem, The Second Coming. He says the following. It's from uh, starts at the third line of the poem. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. So that seems to be a pretty accurate description of what's happened in America in the last few years. The center cannot hold. We've moved to the extremes, and I particularly like... Unfortunately, the accuracy of the last two lines, the best lack all conviction while the worst are full of passionate intensity. So it feels like political conversation in America has deteriorated a lot in the last few years. There's a lot of yelling, a lot of arrogance, a lot of overconfidence, people parroting, retweeting, sharing stories that confirm what they already believe as opposed to stories that challenge what we only think we know. And a lot of people sharing information with each other and believing things that simply aren't true. Um, and some of this is just factually inaccurate, but it's also much more, as listeners know, I'm much more interested in these questions of you know, evidence for various beliefs that we hold and this idea that studies show as if certain research is irrefutable, as if my side has all the good studies and the other side has nothing. And I think that feeling is uh, increasingly growing among a lot of people that they have all the answers and that the other side's just uh, awful. And of course, it's not enough just to disagree with someone. Uh, people can't imagine how a decent human being could disagree with their view of, say, immigration or the minimum wage, or President Trump. And the other two episodes I just want to reference here are um, Arnold Kling on the three languages of politics and the episode of Pluckrose and Lindsay on, on modernity. So it's not just that I don't see the world the way you see it, which is Kling's point, but Pluckrose and Lindsay made me realize that it's, it's that I, not only do I not see your vision and your framework, but your framework is awful. It's dangerous. It's evil. It's got to be stopped, destroyed. Everything rel- it depends on that, uh, making sure that doesn't get used, doesn't happen. And you have to people. A lot of this is um, is being 
is feeling you have to be part of the virtuous tribe, which means not only do you have the correct card in your wallet to reassure yourself that you're in the you're on the good side, but you have to believe that the people who carry any other kind of card are irrational or evil. And this means an end to civilized conversation. It probably often means an end to any kind of conversation at all. And this is extremely dangerous. Uh, when you can't imagine that your political opponents might possibly be right, when you're certain that you're right and they're wrong, it dehumanizes them and it justifies the worst atrocities that human beings are capable of. Now, we have to be careful. Some of this feeling that this is the state of the world, of course, comes from being on Twitter or Facebook where there's a lot of ranting and yelling and a lot of normal people aren't there, of course, um, and people say things anonymously that they wouldn't normally say and that maybe that's misrepresentative of what's actually going on. Uh, politics is a blood sport. It's been a blood sport forever. Uh, you know, you should see the things they said about Thomas Jefferson when he ran for president. And so I don't, I don't want to romanticize the past and say that the world we're in now is unique or uh, I want to be careful not to overstate how different things are. But I do think things are different, and just to reference one more episode, I think the Jonah Goldberg episode on um, Suicide of the West, his book, I, I asked him at one point, what's changed? And I think I also asked that of, of uh, Philip Roosevelt in, in his uh, episode, the conversation I had with him, and we were talking there about populism. And I, I think a common answer, I think it's what Jonah said, maybe also what Philip said, although Philip, I think, had other uh, aspects to it as well, but a common answer you hear at least is, well, it's immigration. There's all this turmoil about what's going to happen to the nature of our country and our national identity and our cu culture. And you know, I think that's part of it, but I don't think that's really what's going on uh, in America. And in fact, I think that immigration has been used to uh, inflame the feelings of uh, tribalism that are already there under the surface. I think it's all about tribalism uh, in the following sense. What do I mean by tribalism? Well, tribalism is our desire to join together with others and be part of something larger than ourselves. It can be a very beautiful thing. It can explain our embrace of religion, our sports teams, certainly our politics. It's very old. It's probably embedded in our DNA. So that's not what's changed what has changed is our ability to feed and indulge our tribalism, particularly in the area of news and politics. And this newfound ability uh, to indulge and um, let our tribalism run wild is, I believe, the result of the transformation of the news and information landscape. And it began with cable news and cable generally, and it's been taken to a new level with the Internet. So I, I don't want to be totally negative or, or negative at all in in any summary way about that transformation. Most of that's been glorious. For a curious person, I often say this here, uh, you know, it's the greatest time to be alive. Um, if you want to discover things about the world and how it works, podcasts, online education, online education, courses on anything, Wikipedia, YouTube videos on how to carve a turkey or how to change your oil, or you name it, you can find so much extraordinary stuff, practical and impractical. You can explore all kinds of wonderful things on the internet. And that profusion, that uh, incredible landscape allows me to customize the news and the information that I consume. And there are many ways to do that, but some of the most obvious ways are social media platforms such as Facebook and Twitter. They entertain us. They let us keep in touch with friends. They let us learn things we couldn't have imagined knowing about. And by friending and following the right people, they let us discover an unending stream of content, a stream that we curate for ourselves. So I don't listen to one news channel or even three or one newspaper or a few magazines with Twitter and Facebook. Uh, or the internet generally, I create my own newspaper, my own news channel by choosing who to follow or who to friend. I can get the highlights of every network, every newspaper, every pundit, every talking head, any reporter who does interesting work. And this information revolution is an extraordinary achievement, and much of it is glorious. Uh, 
the metaphor I want to start with, I'm going to use a couple here today, but the one I want to start with is uh, a buffet, a restaurant that's got a spread of food out and you can help yourself. In the old days, there were only three suppliers to the buffet, ABC, NBC, CBS, and maybe a fourth, your local newspaper. It was a pretty cushy environment for the networks. They jockeyed for market share, but they all had a pretty good deal and you know, bland was the order of the day. Now, one reason it was planned is because you don't want to ruin a good thing, but the other reason is totally driven by technology, and it's really an interesting just sidebar I want to mention. When you live in a world where a house has at most one television, so for a while only a few people had televisions, then maybe televisions started to become more common, but very few people had two televisions. That was a big luxury. So when you have one television – You've got to put out programming that makes pretty much everyone in the household happy because this comes back to the Nassim Taleb point about um, minority, uh, power of the minority. And if there's something awful on TV that to one person's tastes in a family, we're not going to watch that because we don't want to make the mom or the dad or the kid unhappy. We're not, we might, not everybody, everybody might not be ecstatic with what's on, but we're going to pick things that, that appeal to a common denominator. And so when there's only one household, one TV per household, you've really got two or three or four people, maybe five, watching something. And it's not literally a majority rule. People generally don't make decisions that way in small groups. They're going to have a conversation. And if there's something that one person hates – then you're not going to show it. So we're going to watch something else. So that, of course, affects what they're going to put on TV because they're in competition with each other, and they're going to tend to produce bland stuff, uh, meat and potatoes. Now, there's some variation, not much. Each station pretty much served up the same meat and the same potatoes every night on the network news and the same type of silly sitcoms and the same type of procedural police dramas, say. Uh, you know, a show would come along like the Carol Burnett show that was a little outside the box. We look at it now, it's not so outside the box, but at the time that was kind of like an innovative show and people go, oh, this is different. And it struggled. Some of those shows struggled to be successful, those innovative shows. And when they failed, the networks took notice and said, oh, don't, don't, don't do that. Stick with the meat and potatoes. You know, maybe one had French fries, the other had baked, then maybe the third had hash browns, but it's potatoes. And that buffet of news in particular was only open a few hours a day. And then cable comes along. And one of the reason cable, one of the reasons that cable comes along isn't just technology that we could have cable television, but also this point about uh, multiple televisions per household. Once you had more TVs per household, you could allow people to customize what they watched, and people would then watch in smaller groups when they had more televisions. And so cable comes along, and suddenly there are more choices. You could have Fox News and MSNBC. You could have Fish, Tofu, and they're open all day long. A lot of them are you know, providing 24-7 coverage. And then the Internet comes, and with Twitter and Facebook, there's ethnic food and fancy cuisine and diner food and paleo and even some crazy stuff like chocolate-covered locusts. You can go back for more anytime you like. It's open all the time. And of course, everybody's got their own device now. Everybody has the equivalent of their own television in their pocket, which is their smartphone. So I'm going to watch what I want to watch. I'm not going to watch exactly... Uh, I'm not going to watch anything that I don't love. I'm going to find stuff I love. And suddenly, it's now possible to cater to what people love. And that's as individuals, not giving them the lowest common denominator. And so that changes everything. And of course, one of the things that changes is that it suddenly becomes extremely difficult to run a news organization. It's a lot harder to make money because there's a lot more competition out there. And it, I was going to say it took a while for people to figure that out. I'd say they haven't quite figured it out, but some people went to subscription bases, some went to advertising. But no matter how you um, look at it, it, it got a lot harder. And a lot of places didn't make it. A lot of newspapers went out of business. A lot of news sites on the internet still struggled to pay their bills or didn't make it. And there's a big shakeout. And that's that transformation, that disruption, as it's frequently called, is still going on. But one thing is very clear. Traffic is still crucial. Visitors, eyeballs, attention, they're all scarce. And getting more of them helps pay the bills. And, and uh, that's the obvious part. So the obvious part is, and we all know this, that the Internet's disrupted the news business and the information business. 
flood her to make a living. And some people have decried this, that it's awful. But, of course, what's great about it is that for most of us now, we get to watch news that's more like the news we want to watch. We get to watch entertainment that's more like we want to watch. We get to watch – the quality is – you know, extraordinary. I mentioned this recently. I don't remember what episode, but you know, the quality of, of say, Netflix drama or Amazon drama, it, it just dwarfs uh, what used to be and still now is to some extent network television. It's just an extraordinary, it's a golden age of, of visual storytelling. Um, it's, you know, the movie business struggles some, it's doing okay. Uh, but what is doing extraordinarily well is is doesn't have a name. I mean, the, what's doing extraordinarily well is stuff that's great for you and me to watch. It's just there's just too much to watch. It's fabulous. Um, so that's all. That's the good side, and that's the obvious part. That that to thrive in that world, it's really hard because there's a lot more competitors all of a sudden uh, jockeying for those scarce eyeballs, attention, and and visits, and so. The important, not so obvious part, it's obvious once you notice it, when it's a giant buffet, and there aren't just three providers doing meat and potatoes, when it's a giant buffet with competitors all over the place and people able to customize what they see and read, uh, the providers aren't going to keep providing the kind of food they provided before. So it's not just that there's new kinds of food. Everybody, people who are already in the business are going to have an incentive to change what they do because now they're in intense competition and they're going to be much more eager and much more intensely focused on giving people what they want. So there's an increased urgency to give the viewer what the viewer wants. And if you do what you've always done, you're probably not going to survive. Nobody wants the same well-done steak and overcooked mashed potatoes anymore. They put up with it when they had to, when that's all there was on the other plates, the other parts of the buffet, the other channels. But now they don't have to. So if you're a news organization and you want to stay alive, you have to attract more viewers, more attention. You have to do your job. I was going to say you have to do your job better. But what doing your job better means is really the crux of this whole conversation episode because what they're going to try to do better is make me happy now that may not necessarily i'm going to suggest probably doesn't mean they do a better job covering the news uh which is inherently undefinable but but you'll understand what i'm talking about in a minute so here, here are the dynamics and this is i think easily forgotten and missed who is cnn's biggest competitor well most people think it's fox news of course but that's not their biggest competitor. Their competition is really MSNBC and the Huffington Post and the Daily Kos and people on Twitter on the left who give people what they want on the left. Um, the competition of, of CNN is people who lean left. The biggest competitor of Fox News isn't CNN. It's Breitbart and Rush Limbaugh and other sites that cater to the right. So to get more views in that competitive landscape, you need to be a little bit louder in favor of the home team. And a little less nuanced. You can't just politely disagree with the other tribe. You need to vilify them. Outrage sells when competition is this intense. And just to get people to pay attention, you have to be more entertaining than the rest of the options that people have for screen time because you're not really just competing with the other news organizations. So, you know, look at your own habits. What do you want to watch? What grabs your attention when it comes to news and politics? Well, if you're like most people, you have a tendency to read what makes you feel good about yourself. It's hard to read things that challenge your preconceptions that are charitable to the other side. How many stories have you read that turned out just to be wrong? Well, do you even know? Of course you don't. You have no idea. I don't. How much time do you spend making sure that what you believe about some policy issue, immigration or trade or the president's what, trade whatever, that, 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 that those views are really backed up by the evidence or by the facts? When somebody writes a speculative story that turns out to be false, and I've noticed these, they're out there all the time now, uh, when do you notice? When does a price get paid? When does a reporter who runs a story like that or a op-ed writer who writes a speculative predictive story that turns out to be wildly inaccurate, do they pay a price for that? I don't see it. In fact, they're doing fine. They're making their readers happy. Uh, reporters that I follow on Twitter who are all over the uh, political ideological spectrum, they uh, often make claims that don't hold up. They're competing for attention. They say dramatic things, and they are louder and angrier and more partisan than reporters were in the past by my very crude um, 
non-scientific assessment. I just see people saying things that are shocking from reporters who purport to be objective. And that's true on the left and the right. Louder and angrier sells. That's part of the reason Trump won the nomination. Look at Bernie Sanders. He's a self-proclaimed socialist. He used louder and anger and almost beat Hillary Clinton. What I see is people treating the news the way they treat sports, more about entertainment than a search for the truth, more about tribalism and worshiping than being well-informed. So like horror movies, you know, it's a weird thing that we – I'm not a horror movie fan, but I'm obviously um, – I don't know if I'm alone. I'm not. I don't know what kind of a minority or majority, but obviously a lot of people like horror movies. You'll actually pay to be scared, which is interesting, right? Normally, you would not necessarily think that would be a good product to put out. A creepy movie. People like creepy movies. Part of the reason they like creepy movies is that when they're over, they don't. They get to go out back out to their car and go home, and it's safe. But I think the other part is there's some. I suspect there's some kind of evolutionary explanation that you know we're, we're drawn to worrying we're drawn to uh paranoia and i think the new i don't think the news business taps into this big time by showing us the risks if the other side gets in power um and and in whatever policy issue is up for grabs and this demonization it's really turning the um the political debate into a horror movie you know the the other side's zombies or vampires or they're just you know they're they're creepy, and what then happens is, uh, if you're a left leaning viewer, Trump isn't just somebody whose policies you don't like. He's threatening the country. We're going towards Nazi Germany, and on the right, if you're a right leaning person, Hillary Clinton wasn't just a liberal. Had she won, the country would never have recovered. And I know smart people who believe both of those things, not at the same time. Um, to be clear, but they I know smart people who think that Hillary Clinton would have destroyed America forever, and I know smart people who think that Trump is um, taking us down the path towards Nazism. And uh, that's – I don't think that's a good thing uh, to have – that's the, you know, an incredible example of the center. Not, I don't think either of those is credible, to put it a different way. Uh, I think both of those are wildly exaggerated, and uh, if you're sitting there going, I'm wrong, you know, that the boy – He's so naive. Uh, maybe we have different definitions of how to use certain words, but it doesn't mean that everything is great with the Trump administration or Hillary Clinton would have been a fantastic president. It's just – I'm just saying that the extremes there, the extreme reaction is an example of the center not holding. Um, outrage sells. A lot of news these days seems designed to get people outraged and people enjoy – I know I do. I'm not proud of it. I work at trying to stop it, but I know people enjoy being outraged. They like working themselves into a state, and the news is one way to do that. Our Twitter feed is one way to do that. Our Facebook is another way to do that. Um, Now, the news industry and the market for news, the market for information, really isn't that much different than any other product where there's a lot of competition. Suppliers work hard to make the customer happy. Otherwise, the customer will turn elsewhere. Uh, I'm sure you all remember my favorite quote from uh, Walter Williams. This is my relationship with my grocery. I don't tell them when I'm coming. I don't tell them what I want to buy. I don't tell them how much of what I want to buy I'm going to buy. But if they don't have it when I get there, I fire them. And that's because I have a choice. That's because there's a lot of competition out there. And that means that I have to be made happy. And that keeps suppliers on their toes. And that's usually a very good thing. In this case, I'm going to suggest it's not such a good thing, but in most markets, it's a fabulous thing. So, you know, think about the market for shoes. Think about Zappos, which is a website that sells shoes. Uh, they carry about 50,000 kinds of shoes in 2018, where I think that's my best discovery of doing a little poking around the internet. Um, that's a near infinite, unimaginably large selection to find the shoes you want. There's no charge for returns. It's really delightful if you love shoes. I don't love shoes, but every once in a while I have to buy some, and I've used Zappos. And when you shop for shoes, what do you care about? Well, you want them to fit. You want them to be comfortable, and you want them to have some kind of style. You want other people to think you're you know, stylish and look good. You don't want someone judging your shoes as old-fashioned or out of date, unless that's the look you're aiming for, in which case old-fashioned could be just right. But the three things you care about are fit, comfort, and style. So how does that work in the shoe market? Is it, you know, 
do I get fit comfort style? Oh, you bet. Zappos is just a, you know one example of it. It's it's fabulous. It's easy to find the shoes that do what I want. That's what the internet lets me do. It lets me find shoes that fit me, that are comfortable, and that are stylish. And I think that's increasingly the way the internet lets people get their news and the information about the way the world works. Fit, comfort, and style. I want to consume news that fits my preconceived notions. I want to consume news that makes me comfortable. And I want to consume news that makes my friends think I'm really a a great guy and really smart and really understand the way the world works. Fit, comfort, and style. Now, when the shoes I buy don't fit, my feet hurt, so I return them. But what's my incentive to get rid of the views or return the views or drop the views I hold that aren't true or that hurt the country or hurt you? that are dangerous, that are unhealthy, that are bad. Uh, I can keep watching a news channel. I can keep following people on Twitter who are wildly inaccurate. And where's that feedback loop to tell me I need to change the news I consume? Well, there isn't one. Um, You know, with the shoes, I have to wear them. I have to live in the world of the shoes that I bought. With my political views, I don't live in that world. I'm not in charge. You know, I get some... Tiny, in my case, almost no aspect of my worldview gets uh, implemented, so I don't really bear any of the price of the views that I hold, and I have no skin in the game, literally, almost none. And um, even if something I do favor uh, happens, and the world takes a turn for the worse because of some position I've advocated, it's really easy to convince myself that, oh, well, that that turn for the worse. That was because of that. It was something else. The world's complicated. I don't need to... And it is complicated. So it's really hard to figure out what the independent effect of one change is relative to all the other stuff that's going on. And so, you know, what I want to believe in is kind of up for grabs. It's really a personal choice. It's like a, deciding what color of of shoes to wear or what cut of, of my coat or what style of your dress. It's just, you know, I just fit comfort and style. I don't need to worry about whether it's really great for the rest of the world. Now, on one level, I shouldn't care. If you want to watch Shakespeare and I want to watch cat videos, that's what makes the world go around. And that's, you know, we each consume what gives us pleasure. Uh, I don't try to convince you, oh, you bought the wrong shoes. You're hurting your feet. If you say you're comfortable, I just say, well, fine. But it's a little different when it's the news because it might start to change how you vote and how you feel about your neighbor who doesn't vote the same way you do. And all the above is, by the way, just as a side note, that's all about actual things, real people shouting and yelling. It doesn't include fake accounts to try to rile people up and manipulate them. And, you know, one of the sub-themes of this conversation, it's one side of right now, my monologue, is the power of uh, the Internet and Internet sites like Twitter, Google, and Amazon to affect our lives. And, you know, I've said many times on the program, you know, it's not a big deal if they're powerful and can stop using them. The problem is, of course, is that if I stop using them and you don't, and you start getting through political manipulation, uh, a lot of things in your feed that get you really angry. And they're able to do that because they know a lot about you and what your habits are. That's kind of scary. That's not good for democracy. And uh, we're going to talk at the end of this conversation about what we can do about that, but it's not an easy problem to solve. And I think we're going to be struggling this, with this for, for, um, for, for quite a while. I think, it's, um, I think it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. I, you know, my joke is everyone assumes the next election when uh, it's going to be something like uh, Joe Biden against Mitt Romney, but it's more likely to be Oprah against Ronda Rousey. Uh, I just – you know, I think they're going to be – I just don't have any idea how the internet's going to be used to uh, get people worked up. And I uh, – it's just – it's a real it's a real issue. Uh, and as I said, that's just with, um, you know, accurate information, not just um, who knows what it's going to do for people that are – when people are going to be making up stuff, um, literally. So the standard answer to this um, – problem these problems are <laughs> is an answer i used to give now i'm, I'm laughing because I, I just find it a little bit just a titch naive which is media literacy you know we just need people to understand that you know not everything you read is true so you need to be you need to be skeptical 
you know, all we need to do is help people understand that that not everything they read is true. You just have to kind of take things with a grain of salt, be skeptical. And of course, that's, I confess, you know, when I said, I, you know, I laugh that I'm suggesting it because it's a little naive. It's part of the goal of this program. Part of my goal here is to help people become better skeptics about what they read. And it's part of my goal as a, you know, personal goal is to understand the limits of my own knowledge and to figure out what I don't know and to be skeptical about what I think I know. And I think that's all great. Big fan of that still. But I'm not sure it's a national policy. And one of the reasons it's not likely to be so helpful is that um, you have to ask the question, what if people don't care about what's true? Think about that. What if most people don't care about what's true? They just hold the beliefs that make them feel good. Just like they wear the shoes that make them make their feet comfortable. Now, I know you're different, but if you really are, if you really just care about objective truth and never indulge in your tribal urges, you're really special. You're probably one of a kind. The rest of us, alas, are deeply flawed. Truth is not the only thing we care about, and if we care about it at all, it's pretty far down the list coming long after fit, comfort, and style, I'd suggest. The return to discovering the truth just isn't high enough. As a citizen, your incentive to figure out whether your deeply held policy views are good or bad for your country or the world is pretty small. After all, you're not in charge. Even if you bother to vote, your one vote's unlikely to break a tie. So why spend a lot of time studying the evidence for and against your views? I, I was giving a version of this uh, talk uh, publicly, and, and someone in the Q&A part said, well – I don't know. I, I think I care about the truth. <laughs> and, of course, we all think we do. We all like to – that's another thing we like to believe about ourselves because, you know, as Adam Smith said, man naturally desires not only to be loved but to be lovely and that is to be respected and admired and to earn that respect, admire, admiration and praise honestly. So we don't like to think bad things about ourselves. We like to think, yeah, I'm a truth seeker. I'm, I'm out for – I want to make sure that everything I believe is true. So here's, here's a story to help you put that in perspective. Um, around 1846 or so, Ignaz Semmelweis uh, proposed that the reason that up to 20, sometimes more percent of women were dying in childbirth was, of purple fever was because doctors didn't wash their hands after they went to the morgue. It's a story I've told on Econ Talk before. Give a slightly different emphasis of why I'm telling it this time. But so Semmelweis makes this hypothesis and he tests it and he has people in this uh, hospital uh, start washing their hands with this uh, solution of I think it's chlorine some kind of disinfectant and mortality rates drop and he's thrilled and he starts spreading the word that we need to start washing our hands as doctors and uh, he made almost no impact whatsoever um, it wasn't at least for another decade, maybe more, until Pasteur came up with the theory of germs and others that people started thinking that he might have been right. And why is it? Why, with, with this horrible tragedy of women dying in childbirth, because of doctors themselves, why wouldn't doctors take his hypothesis more seriously? And one answer, I'm afraid, is that even, of course, even though, of course, they wanted to know the truth, the idea that that truth was really unpleasant. It was a very unpleasant truth. It was a truth that said that it was the doctors themselves that were killing these women. And they just didn't want to face it. Uh, they found a lot of reasons to dismiss his work, some of which might have been right, by the way. It wasn't perfect. He didn't do a great job. He had a difficult personality. He didn't do a very thorough test. And uh, it was easily dismissed. And, of course, he wasn't 100% right. He didn't totally understand germs. Totally didn't understand them at all. But he did see this correlation and, uh, of course, easily dismissed as correlations and causation. And for decades or more, uh, another few decades, women continued to die needlessly because of their um, unwillingness, doctors' unwillingness to see Semmelweis's hypothesis is correct. So I just would suggest that we struggle with the truth. Here's another oh, less dramatic, uh, more whimsical example. Uh, you may remember Deflategate. A scandal where Tom Brady of the New England Patriots was accused of deflating footballs below the regulation level of pressure to make them easier to throw. And most of you will know that I'm a Patriots fan. I wrote a lengthy essay 
uh, which we'll put a link up to if I remember, as to why uh, the evidence showed that Brady didn't do anything wrong. I wasn't alone. An MIT uh, physicist also gave a lecture on the internet about this. Uh, the theme of both that article, that lecture, my article was the weather explained the temperature and the hum- and the moisture in the air explained the level of deflation in the footballs without relying on the possibility that Brady cheated. But of course, there's also there was some questionable stuff in there. It wasn't 100 percent. Never is naturally. We had some texts between him and his. Uh, people who worked for the team that were at least ambiguous at best about his interest in having them do something that maybe wasn't 100% kosher. So it was hard to know with any certainty. But I don't think it's a coincidence that I, as a Patriots fan, and an MIT professor who I presume was a Patriots fan, were out there spreading the word that maybe Brady was innocent. Uh, They did a survey. This is just fabulous. They did a survey of the American people – this was not an internet poll. It was an actual, uh, I think. It was an actual survey. 75% of the American people thought Tom Brady was a cheater. 75%, so three out of four. They found the evidence uh, conclusive that, that he was a cheater. But in four states, not five, not three, four, four states, uh, less than 22, 20% or less of the people in those states thought he was a cheater. So 75% is the national average. But in four states, the... Um, proportion of people who thought he was a cheater was 22% or less. I wonder if you could guess what those four states are. Um, you know, you could turn off, you can pause the the uh, episode here and just uh, maybe speculate as to what those four states are. One of them is Massachusetts, where the New England Patriots uh, find their home. Uh, the other three, of course, are Maine, New Hampshire, Rhode Island. Uh, deliciously, Connecticut, which is the dividing line between Boston and New York sports fans, is it, was at 55%, right in between. So people's views on Deflategate were correlated with their tribe, the group they identified with, the group they rooted for, or the group they hated. Um, I don't think Evidence was the decisive factor on whether you thought or think now that Tom Brady was a cheater. Tribalism was a much better predictor. This is not surprising, and it's not that important to the ultimate scheme of things, even if you're a Patriots fan or a Patriot hater. But it's kind of important for whether or what the influence of the Russian government was on the election of 2016. Did Donald Trump collude with the Russians? Did he get framed? Did the Russians interfere in a substantive way with our election? That's a little more important than Deflate Gate, and it's really hard to know what the answer to those questions are. Um, you may think you know with certainty, and you're really angry about it on one side or the other, but I'd say it's not so obvious. And um, I don't think most of us who hold strong views on those questions have a lot of evidence to defend what we believe. Uh, a lot of it's just our tribal instincts. And those are what we use to make our political judgments and lots of our judgments. So if we only consume news that confirms our tribal identity and then shows up uh, and humiliates the tribes on the other side of the political fence, we will not only stick to our views, but we will stick to them with a lot more enthusiasm and undeserved certainty. If you read the New York Times day in and day out, you're going to be much more confident that Trump's a threat to America, impeachment's necessary to prevent racism and oppression from running rampant and America becoming unrecognizable. If you watch Fox News day in and day out, you're going to be much more confident that Trump is the victim of a left-wing conspiracy. He's all that stands between the United States and something unrecognizable. When tribalism trumps the search for truth, democracy is going to struggle. The ability to indulge our tribalism and the increased certainty that many people have about what is true and the faith they have in their own beliefs makes it a lot harder to have a country that works, a political system that works. As Yates said, when the best lack all conviction and the worst are full of passionate intensity, the center will not hold. I worry we're heading toward a very dark place. Um, One of the great virtues of the American system of government has been its inertia. The checks and balances make it hard to move the ship. But if the views of the citizenry head toward extremes and become less amenable to change, we may get some very unusual political candidates and politicians and political outcomes may oscillate a lot more widely. The other day I came across an article, How to Fix What's Gone Wrong with the Internet. I don't know what the article was about. But if uh, we want to fix what's gone wrong with the Internet, you know, what, 
what if what's gone wrong is us? What if our nature is the problem? How do we fix ourselves? So to summarize the problem, the freedom of the internet and social media ecosystem lets us tailor news to what we want to hear. The competitive landscape of the information and news world encourages media outlets to be louder and more tribal. They sing to their own particular choir, the louder the better. This could change how we vote and how we interact as citizens. It's already doing it. So what's to be done about this natural impulse uh, besides to go off in a corner and cry uh, or continue to do econ talk and hope for the best? Uh, so I want to try to suggest some things that might make this a little bit better. Um, and I, I do this with a, with a lot of trepidation, obviously. It's, uh, it's very hard to know um, what, is, um, what is to be done here. Well, the problems I'm laying out, these are a classic case of what economists call a market failure, a situation where my private incentives lead to unattractive outcomes for others. Uh, you can call that a negative externality, just a market failure in general. Um, so if I don't care much about the truth and care instead about fit, comfort, and style, my choices are going to end up hurting you. The way I vote is going to end up hurting you. Your choices are going to end up hurting me. We're going to vote for things that aren't really in our actual interests. We're going to hold views that don't make sense. We're going to believe things that aren't true because um, – the incentives that we have to find out the actual truth are relatively limited. When we're in a situation like that, a lot of economists typically advocate government intervention of some kind to fix these kind of problems. And there's usually a presumption that if we do that, that the bureaucrats and the politicians will just implement the things we tell them to. And uh, listeners will know that I'm usually often skeptical of these kinds of interventions, but not always. There are, there are things the government does better than the private sector, and uh, but I'd argue this is not one of them, unfortunately, because politicians and bureaucrats face their own private incentives uh, that often conflict with what's a good outcome. So, you know, the competition that usually would self-regulate here by having uh, firms take care of their customers, it's, it's really the part of the problem. It's the fact that, that the firms themselves are uh, providing information that customers want to hear, even if it's not 100% objectively true. So competition is not the um, – is, is actually exacerbating the problem, making it worse. It's the wrong kind of feedback loop. Uh, but the problem is, is that there's no reason to think that the government can do it any better, not just no reason to think. If it's actually the same problem. Uh, putting the problem into the government's inbox doesn't do anything to avoid it. Uh, the whole problem is that the way we choose our politicians and policies – or being corrupted by the information landscape, there's no reason to think that the people chosen by that process will be interested in providing the truth or being objective. So, you know, one way to just frame this whole problem is uh, the news providers have lost any sense of objectivity. It just doesn't pay. It doesn't pay in politics or policy either. Letting the government decide speech or news or anything to do with the stream of information that we receive is unconstitutional, but it's also, I think, dangerous. That's the reason it's unconstitutional. So um, that's not going to work very well. Um, and just you know, just to step back for a sec, you know, it's, I, I just want to mention this because I, it fascinates me. Journalists still have a code that they're objective and that they're truth seekers. And when I, if you tell a journalist that they have a bias or that their their newspaper or their their um, Network has a bias. They they get really mad. They get deeply offended. They'll 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 yell at you and and say you don't understand. Our job is to be objective. That's what we're paid to do. We have to present both sides. And and you know, as an economist, I step back and I look at the incentives they face. And the incentives they face are to get eyeballs. And if you want to have a story on the front page of the New York Times or the lead at Fox News or wherever, you're going to naturally be pushed relentlessly toward drama and um you know if it bleeds it leads uh is the, is the joke in the news business not the joke it's the slogan of the news business and because people like dramatic things and i think we're just seeing with the internet and with uh cable we're just seeing the most extreme versions of that so i don't want the government to try to fix this i don't think they can um that's scary, actually, deeply scary that the government's going to decide what's true, what not true, what's not true, say fine or uh, regulate these 
providers of content or their platforms where we find content to only do the things that are true and, and correct is, is a horrifying thought. I don't want the government involved in that at all. Uh, one private solution is uh, Elon Musk having been, uh, he, in his opinion, miscovered and covered badly in the news about, uh, I think it was some some investor's comment he made. So he proposed, I mean, I think I have this right, a Yelp-like solution so we could rate the truthfulness of news stories. Um, you know, that works okay with restaurants where we eat the food, but we don't eat the political views that we hold. We don't know if the foods or political foods really good or if it's actually poisoning us. The world's too complicated. A Yelp-like solution is going to end up like a Deflategate poll. People just indulge their tribalism. And you can see this in comment sections. You know, in theory, uh, when I'm on Amazon and I'm trying to decide whether to read a book and I read the reviews, I learn by the way the review's written and the type of person is – something about the person, type of person's writing and I can decide, oh, is that person kind of like me? And, and of course, there are people who give dishonest reviews, but a lot of reviews I think are honest. People to say what they liked or didn't like about a book. Uh, Go and read the comment section to, say, Megan McArdle at the Washington Post or Paul Krugman at the New York Times or anybody uh, who's writing in a mainstream media outlet with, a, with a, some kind of viewpoint. And you just see comment after comment after comment about how horrible and evil the person is or how brilliant and wonderful they are. It's just um, we're not going to learn a lot from voting on stories like that. Now, the other worry I have, which is uh, we don't have time for this on this episode, but it's somewhat related to what um, what I talked about with Matt Stoller, but not in the direction that he's worried about. Um, let's say there is some monopoly power, which I think there is, with these uh, large internet folk like Google, Facebook, Apple, Twitter, etc. Well, they're self-regulating. They're already talking about how they're going to fix this for the next election. They're not going to let it happen again. But I'm not convinced that what they're going to propose or what they're going to do is so conducive to object truth. Uh, they have their own axes to grind, their own tribalism. Uh, to the extent they have monopoly power, they can indulge those that power and indulge their own flavors of tribalism to enhance the chances that their kinds of politicians, their kinds of policies get passed. So that's also kind of scary and uh Again, I don't really think there's going to be a good way for the government to regulate that. So I think that's the top-down correction of those kind of uh, impulses not so healthy. So I want to now suggest what I think we can actually do, both as individuals and perhaps in groups, to uh, to make things better. And I, I don't want to pretend this is going to be don't, – don't get your hopes up. You know, this is not going to be like uh, – this fabulous list of suggestions. They're quite modest, as you'd expect. Um, you know, it's like, uh, you know, we, we, we got to do something. Well, I don't know. We don't. Uh, what we have to do probably is something that actually is good. That would be my first rule. Not we have to do something. We have to do something that's good. I have to do something that actually makes the problem better, improves things. So that, that's always my, um, of course, rule of thumb. So first thing, not surprisingly, for longtime listeners, I would suggest humility. We don't know everything we think we do. Uh, I've learned to enjoy saying, I don't know. Admitting ignorance is bliss. Recognize as Shakespeare suggested, there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamed of in your philosophy. That's not so easy. And as I've alluded to in a few times in recent conversations, humility has got its own risks, which if things really are going Badly, you, you don't want to be humble. you, you got to be passionate. So you don't want just the certain people to be passionate. You do want some of the humble people to be passionate. If you're, if you're always saying, I don't know, you tend not to be very proactive. So that, that's a genuine concern. It's an issue I'm going to, I'm sure, be returning to now and then, um, inevitably. But that's a real problem, um, both of those things. We're too arrogant, so we need to be more humble, but we also have to keep in mind that there may be some things that are generally danger, genuinely dangerous, and we can't just sit on the sidelines and say, who, who knows? There are some things we know, um, so we should stand by our principles, but we should be humble and aware of the possibility that some of those principles may not be correct. 
Second piece of advice is uh, to follow people on Twitter or Facebook who don't agree with you. Try to find folks who are relatively civil. That may be unrealistic. They just may make you matter. So if you follow people on Twitter and Facebook who are different from you, instead of getting educated, you might just get angry. So that's um, not the best solution, perhaps, but it's a thought. Uh, The third is to hold your anger for a day, a wonderful expression. Um, which I'm a big fan of. Don't ratchet up the rhetoric. Do your part to bring more civilization and more civility to social media. Don't answer emails with from strangers who hate your guts with the same kind of angry rhetoric. Answer people calmly. Don't play the game. Don't lower yourself. I think that's really um, just good advice generally, not just for this issue, but just for one's own sanity and soul. Uh, fourth, spend less time on the internet, more time with human beings. It's easier said than done, especially for young people. But if you can't quit, take a day off, a Sabbath from Discord. I think that's a great idea if you can handle it. And uh, the fifth is try to notice when you enjoy outrage. Just just be aware of the fact that you ha- may have that personality trait. I think many of us do. That when you find yourself feeling um, the sweetness of that anger to realize that that's a very unhealthy emotion and that it's um, you should keep an eye on it. Now, I'm, I have some other things to say, but, but those are just sort of personal piece of personal advice to, I think, move us in the right direction. And I think the more people who followed that, the world would be a better place. I try to do all those things. I struggle. It's not easy. They're not straightforward. They're not effortless. They're hard. It's also the possibility that market forces may create... Um, a set of objective, civilized news sources. Um, but that's a long shot. That's going to be hard for reasons I've talked about. But market forces may improve things through a different set of channels. You know, someone might start a Facebook competitor or Twitter with a different set of incentives for uh, making you feel good about yourself by attracting eyeballs and being loud and angry. So consider using those opportunities, those options when they come along, and I think they will. If you're worried about the power of Google, you might consider using DuckDuckGo or another type of search engine that knows less about you. True, it won't know when you're taking a trip and slot it beautifully into your calendar, which I confess I find really cool, but it's not really that important. Uh, Arnold Kling, frequent econ talk guest, economist, wrote recently, quote, I'm sick of reading about people who want to regulate Facebook. You didn't come up with the idea. You didn't build the business. Now that it's here, who the heck do you think you are telling them how to run it? It's not that I'm happy with Facebook, far from it, but to me, the best way to fix it would be to come up with something better. I figured if we really do come up with a much better way of running a social network, then some entrepreneur will be able to make a success out of our idea, close quote. That's a great point. Uh, If you want to, uh, it's not a bad thought to uh, try to build an alternative social um, network that is um, less about ranting and yelling or finds ways to reward people other than just attracting followers to make them feel good about themselves. I'm not saying that's an easy thing to do, but I think I think it's going to happen. Uh, somebody, can, people are going to try it. They may try it for different reasons than just these political reasons that I'm giving, but I think people will try it. Um, the last thing I would say is uh, I think there are things that foundations and think tanks can do. Um, I am a fellow with the Hoover Institution. We work with Brookings on uh, financial regulation. Uh, Brookings and AEI have for a long, long time done work on regulation generally together, uh, trying to find common ground from people who are generally on the right and generally on the left to work together. Uh, so I think that's a great idea. Of course, part of the problem is, is that in many dimensions, Hoover, Brookings, AEI, we're like just totally centrist compared to some of the extremes that are getting uh, more attention. And I think those extremes are going to find their own think tanks and generate their own uh, sets of, of policies to, to gather attention and to gather money. And um, it's, gonna, it's a lot harder for somebody on the, say, far right to work with somebody on the far left than it is for somebody on the centrist right like Hoover to work with somebody on the centrist left like Brookings or AEI with Brookings. I think these are... You know, I don't want to overstate how exciting this is. It's not that exciting, but I think it's a step in the right direction. And I think within a discipline like economics, it would be really cool if some of us had the courage to partner with a an economist on the other side of the ideological fence to come up with a research project, uh, research agenda 
that held each side accountable, that held each other's side, uh, feet to the fire, so to speak. That is, it, let's say you're talking about the minimum wage. Well, there's a lot of people who are convinced the minimum wage is relatively benign, doesn't at current levels, has very little impact on employment. There are a lot of people who disagree. They each do their own studies. They, Strangely enough, they find evidence for their viewpoints. But what if there was a new data set or a new social experiment, like a new city, uh, like Seattle has done recently, that went out and you know raised the minimum wage dramatically, and, and two economists, one from each side of the fence, one who's a worrier about the impact on employment, one who's not so worried about it, said – Whatever data comes out of this, we're going to work together to try to see what the actual impact is. Uh, and I think that would be a fascinating thing. Um, you know, I tried to do that on Econ Talk a little bit with um, when I had John Christie and Carrie Emanuel on to talk about climate change. That's an issue that people are very passionate about. Uh, they're a rare um, duo in that I think they disagree very strongly about climate change and the uh, – understanding of it, but they're civilized to and civil to each other and can have a real conversation. So I think that would be a great thing. It's a, you know, I don't think, um, not sure it would revolutionize, say, the debate on immigration if, if a pro and anti-immigration economist went and looked at data together. But I think it's a good idea. And I think, um, you know, I think of a bunch of issues, the minimum wage, the macroeconomic role of stimulus, uh, immigration, trade policy. It'd be really uh, interesting if we could find two civil economists on different sides of an issue who are both empirically minded and both willing to be brave enough. The problem is it's really scary because you might find out that your view's wrong. That would be really awful. Um, but I think, you know, the challenge here is that is that uh, those types of empirical findings I think are just, you know, not so important, unfortunately or not. Doesn't really matter. Um, you know, I think economists like to think that their work just determines the, you know, the policy landscape, their findings. But I think they're just tools that politicians use to justify their beliefs. I don't think and justify their positions. I don't think they're really I'm not convinced they're decisive. I think they're more window dressing for politicians. So I'm not sure this is a uh, a really important idea, but it's, I think, a useful idea. But I think the a more general point I want to make is that um, I think we have to hope that a cultural norm is going to emerge that it's a bad idea to indulge your tribalism all the time. And cultural norms are uh, really powerful. Uh, they really run our world in all kinds of ways under the surface that we don't even think about or realize. And I think there's going to – I'm hopeful that there will be some kind of pendulum swinging back on these issues that, that I'm talking about, that people will be more uncomfortable and embarrassed to be as tribal as we are right now and to be as outraged as we are right now. And perhaps it will become a cultural norm to be more thoughtful, be a cultural norm to be more open-minded, a cultural norm to be more humble, a cultural norm not to yell at your opponents, a cultural norm not to dehumanize your opponents – the only problem with this as a solution is that we don't know how to create cultural norms, but um, they are the result of lots of individuals doing lots of things. And um, organizations like think tanks and foundations can have a, a role in encouraging a step in those directions. And I think that's a really uh, – would be really helpful. So while we don't know what creates cultural norms and we don't know how to control them and there's no le lever or knob for – making sure that we get these norms to change toward a, a more healthy and, and more uh, skeptical structure about, say, our own views or how right we are or, or how extreme we should be in the face of the other side. Um, it's also the case that our own individual actions do matter, not so much by themselves, but in cumulative fashion alongside the actions of others. So, the more and more people who are humble, the more and more people, the more people who are humble, the more people who are nuanced, the more people who are empathetic, kind, um, non-dehumanizing, humanizing, um, it adds up. And it's something you have control of. You, you, not, not, not your uh, representative who you have to call and not your um, – not the think tank you maybe donate to, but thank you very much. But 
you in your own personal actions alongside millions of others, you eventually determine the landscape of civility or non-civility in our political discussion. And um, every time you dismiss someone as evil or an idiot or a Nazi or whatever term that you use to demonize the people who don't agree with you, you're taking us in a bad direction. And every time you're open-minded and kind and skeptical and humble, you take us in a different direction. So I try to do what I can. Um, As I said before, it's under my control. It's under your control. Those decisions, tiny decisions about how to respond to people on Twitter, how to respond to people via email, how to respond to people over the dinner table, those 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 are our lives. Those are the things we do that make up our lives. And added together across all the people that uh, make up a country or even the world, those are the things that determine the culture. So each of us can help push us in the direction of creating a norm that's better than the one that we seem to be heading toward now. And I encourage all of us to be part of the solution and not part of the problem. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. Um, If you have any feedback, there will be a place to comment, of course, at econtalk.org. And I look forward to interacting with you there uh, when this comes out. Thanks so much. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.